Amen. You guys can be seated. Glad you guys are here this morning. <clears throat> Hypocrites. Hypocrites. That's, that's the reason or maybe the excuse that the majority of people give for not going to church. There's too many hypocrites there. The church is full of hypocrites. In fact, I can remember a conversation I had with a woman one, one, one afternoon, I believe it was. I was actually still working in aviation. This was many years ago. Standing and working at the tail of an aircraft. I was on a ladder, and we were having a conversation about church. I don't know how it started. I'm, I'm, I'm working. She's standing off on the ground. And the topic comes up, and so we were talking about it. And she looks at me square in the eye. I look down at her. She, she's looking up at me, and she says, I, I want nothing to do with church because you're all a bunch of hypocrites. I was a little offended <laughs> by that. I'm just going to be honest. I mean, that really that, that hit home. I mean, I, I thought, wow, is that what you think of me? Um, now, there's all kinds of defenses, and there's all kinds of things that we could say back. In fact, there's many people that have plenty of clever answers to that, you know, the, the reality is, is that everybody's a hypocrite. There's hypocrisy in every one of us. But the fact of the matter is, is that people in our culture, especially uh, religious cultures, uh, like we live in here in the middle of Springfield, people that are unchurched look at church people and they say, you're hypocrites. So deal with it. You're hypocrites. How's that feel? I, I didn't like it, so I'm imagining you don't either. Don't, don't beat yourself up too badly. The, the reality is that you're not alone. In fact, Springfield is full of churches. There's a church on nearly every corner. We've got churches all over the place. And this morning, it's full of people that our culture outside the church looks at and says they're hypocrites. So you're not alone. And it's pretty good company to be in. It's not, not all bad. So don't, don't beat yourselves up too badly about it. But hypocrisy really is a problem. In fact... Um, Johnny Moore, he's the campus pastor and vice president of Liberty University. Uh, he wrote a book called Honestly, Really Living What We Say We Believe. And this is what he said in an interview about that book. For 2,000 years, hypocrisy has been Christianity's biggest problem. It is the singular issue that has alienated more people from the church than any other. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. Hypocrisy is it, it is it is a problem. Let me spit that out for you. It is a problem, but don't assume, based off this one sound bite or this the, the way we've started this message, that it's going to be the issue that undoes the church. The reality is is that the church is bigger than that. However, I want us to recognize that in the midst of Christianity, there is some. There, there is some ugliness due to the, the fallenness that still resides in us that we have to be fighting against. And that's, that ugliness is really what we're going to be looking at today. As we look at the passage that we're going to be in today, Galatians, uh, if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. Galatians chapter 2. As, as we look at this passage, we're going to recognize even in a leader of the church, the ugliness of fallenness that's being working, work, worked out of him and being being that he's being sanctified from. The reality is, is especially with hypocrisy, I mean, we're going to see it clearly today, and, and, and it becomes evident that it's been something that's always been a part of the church. I don't, give, I don't think it gives us reason just to live in it or dwell in that place. But I think as you'll see today, along with that, the other ugliness that's going to be revealed, I think you'll see that there is hope to overcome and that there is a way that we can see this hypocrisy purged from us. Galatians 2, we're going to start reading in verse 11. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now let's just stop right there and talk about this for a second. The passage, verse 11, opens up with the word but. And what that does is it lets us know that this kind of refers back to the passage that started, that we studied last week. Last week, if you'll remember, we studied about Peter and, and uh, Steve, uh, not Peter, Peter, James, and John sitting and listening to Paul give his proclamation of the gospel. And as they listened, they agreed with it and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And that was what we really talked about last week, how, how in the gospel there was unity even among diverse people groups. 
And that's what we see happen. And so now we see, you know, last week, here's this great unity, this great this great um, coming together in, in the truth of the gospel and this right hand of fellowship being given. But when Peter comes to Antioch, that's where kind of Paul was living at at the time. He was residing there, working from there. That's where his mission journeys would start from. He, as he lived there and worked among these people, Peter decides to come and visit him. I don't know what the reason is. We're not told, but we know that Peter gets up one day, leaves from Jerusalem and goes to Antioch. When he gets there, he hangs out with Paul. We don't know how, how long he was there. We don't know what exactly he was doing while he was there, but we know that he was with Paul and the, uh, and the rest of the church. And he would sit and he would fellowship with them and he would eat with them. And he just hung out like he was just another good old boy. You know, I mean, he was, he was just like every other Gentile that was in Antioch. Every other Gentile Christian. He hung out. They worshiped together. They served together. They ate food together. And that becomes really important when you think about Paul's history. There's Paul was a Jew. And there's a lot of things that he wouldn't eat normally. But because of the gospel, because of God's work in his life, he found freedom to begin to eat things that before he wouldn't eat. For example, as he sat in Antioch and ate and fellowshiped and spent time with these Gentile Christians, it's likely that he kicked back and had, had some pork chops. You know, maybe, maybe had a pulled pork sandwich. You know, maybe had ba- bacon with his eggs in the morning. The, the reality is, is that he was eating foods that he normally wouldn't eat. It's kind of ironic when you think about it. Because Peter who we're, we're seeing is, is doing these things, being this Jew, and then he sees these people come in and begins to act like a Jew again, and he's, he's, he's not living in his freedom. It's, it's kind of ironic when you begin to think about it. Because the way the church came to know, the Jewish Christians came to know that they could eat these things, was because God revealed it to Peter first. You see, Peter should have, had, he, he should have felt all the freedom in the world to eat whatever he wanted. Peter was on his way to meet this guy one day. The guy's name was Cornelius. He's on his way to meet him, and before he gets there, God gives him a vision, reveals a revelation. It's never happened to me, so it's hard for me to understand what it looks like, but he sees something like a sheet unfold from heaven, and out of that sheet falls all kinds of animals. The animals of the field, birds of the air. I mean... Anything you can imagine, I think, is there. I think specifically the things that he saw, based on the passage, you can read about it in Acts 10, were animals that were sinful or wrong or unclean to the Jewish people. I think specifically he saw things like pigs and, 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 and things that they weren't allowed to eat. And God says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. If you're a vegan, God said it was okay, so we can... We can do this. Get up and eat. Kill. Eat. Peter's like, whoa, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what, who are you to say what's unclean and not unclean? Don't, don't call anything I've given you or blessed you with unclean. And so Peter, what Peter learns pretty quickly there is God was the one that instituted the food laws to the Jews. And so it was equally possible and equally God's responsibility to repeal the food law. So here's Peter, the man who should have been able to stand where no other man could stand. I mean, Peter should have been the guy fighting for these food freedoms before anyone else. He should have been the guy to fight this fight. He's hanging out with these Gentiles, loving the freedom, eating the pig. I mean, who knows, you know, they may, have, they, may have had a, they may have stuck a pig in a pit and had a huge barbecue, a huge pig roast, you know. I, I don't know, but I know that he should have enjoyed that freedom. And what the passage shows us is that these men come from Jerusalem. It says they come from James. We don't know. In fact, it's probably not likely because of the passage before where there was unity in the gospel and that gospel was the same gospel that Paul has been proclaiming. It's probably not likely that these people were truly endorsed by James. Like James sent them and said, hey, go straighten out these Gentile people. For, they're, they're eating pigs. We've got to do something about that. It's probably not that, that that's the case. But they at least came from the Jerusalem church. 
And in the Jerusalem church, there was a group of people called the Circumcision Party. And they loved their traditions and their regulations. A lot like the Judaizers we've talked about as we've gone through Galatians. And here these people come in from Jerusalem. Peter sees them and begins to recognize that they're there. And he suddenly begins to feel nervous. In fact, it says that he fears them. And he slowly begins to pull away from these Gentile believers. He slowly begins to step back from these Gentile believers. Because he doesn't feel the freedom. He doesn't recognize the freedom. I mean, he's the guy. He's the guy that should feel, feel it. He's the guy that should experience it. He's the guy that should be standing and fighting this fight because he's the guy that got the revelation from God. But here's Peter. Fearing man and beginning to live in a way that he believes they'll approve of. Have you ever struggled with that? you ever felt that pressure? I don't want anybody to know that I struggle with this problem. I don't want anybody to know that this is what my life really looks like. I don't want anyone to know what's really going on inside of me. A lot of times that's driven by a fear of man. A fear of what people will think of you. A fear, a fear that they're not going to like you or that they're going to reject you. A fear that in some way that you're going to be, that you're going to be pushed out. Well, here's Peter. Doing what is completely ironic. Bowing to their wishes. Not defending the revelation or the vision that he had had. Let's just keep reading. Pick it back up in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, here's, here's Peter. He's eating with the Gentiles. He steps back when the circumcision party comes in. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, bowing to the, to the expectations, the fear, the, the, the weight, the pressure that these other people put on him, he begins to draw back. And when he does that, Peter is an influential figure. He's a, he's a leader. I, I, I don't even think Peter intends always to lead. I don't think Peter sets out always to lead. It's just who he is. I mean, he's the guy that's always stepping out in front. He's speaking first. He's the guy that's running ahead of everybody else. He's the guy that's getting out in the way. And sometimes he's jumping before he even recognizes what he's doing. That's Peter. He's a leader. And here he is. He steps back and, and people are looking at him. They're watching him. And they begin to copy him. And so all of these other Jewish believers that are, that are there in Antioch, in the church, they begin to step back from the Gentiles. And so suddenly you begin to have this division become evident in the church. And all of a sudden you've got this group of Gentiles who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, who have responded to the gospel, who've, who, who it's been demonstrated that they have life in them, suddenly being treated differently and as different citizens or a different class than these Jewish Christians. Because of Peter. Even Barnabas, it says, and it's, it's interesting to me that it pulls Barnabas out because Barnabas, you know, he's known to be the encourager. He's the guy that is, is always standing by your side and he's just pumping you up and he's making you feel good. Even in the darkest days, Barnabas is there making people feel good and, and recognize the truth of the gospel. And, and here's Barnabas watching Peter and watching these other believers. He's getting sucked up in it himself. Barnabas. The very guy who went with Paul during the last passage, back in verse, um, would have been about verse 6. Going back with Paul to Jerusalem, sitting in front of these pillars in the church, in front of these men who seemed influential. Barnabas sitting there with Paul as this gospel is proclaimed and is agreed upon and these church leaders stand unified. Barnabas. Somebody that had been working with Paul for some time. Even gets sucked up in the midst of it. Gets sucked up in the midst of it and begin, begins to act like a hypocrite. Now Paul won't stand for it. 
Paul steps up and he recognizes, and, and, and really this is, this is the heart of it, and we're going to get to this a bit later. He says, because he saw that they were out of step with the gospel, because he saw that there was something wrong that, that didn't match with what they said they believed versus what they were doing. There was something that was not right. When I was in the military, and maybe you've seen this on, on video, maybe you were in the military, and you've seen it yourself, but when I was in the military and we would march in, uh, in, in our companies, we had to stay in step. And when someone was out of step, it was very obvious. I mean, if one or even two or three people, it stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, if you were watching from a distance and could see the whole company, when one person's out of step, their head's going a different direction than everybody else. As they, take a, as they take a left step, as everybody else is taking a right step, their head's going one way and the rest of their heads are going another. And it looks like something is just wrong. Is something not right? And so our drill sergeants, man, it was terrible. Our drill sergeants, if we couldn't figure out, in fact, we had one guy who had to begin to, uh, he had to, begin to wear something on his left hand so that he would know what was his left side. And the guy would get so worked up. It was, it was really kind of funny. I wasn't intending to share this. So I'll just, let me share it shortly with you. It was, it was so funny because he would get so stressed out when the drill sergeants would talk to him about it. They'd be like, private, I don't even remember his name, private so-and-so, what's your left hand? And he'd raise his right hand because he'd get so confused. And so they would say left and he'd take a right step and he'd get, he was just messed up. And so pretty quickly they made him begin to wear things on his left hand so that he would know that's where I start. This is my, this is my side, you know? Well, that's what it looked like to Paul. He's looking and he sees that what they're saying and how they're acting, they don't line up. They don't match. There's something wrong, and he's not going to stand for it. So he pulls Peter aside. Well, he doesn't pull him aside. He pulls Peter out in front of everyone. I, I, I don't know what this looks like. I, I don't know what this... I, I think I got a feeling for what it might have felt like in that moment. Last week, we talked about a situation that might have been confrontational and uncomfortable and awkward feeling. I can guarantee you this one was. This is that moment when, you know, like you see two people arguing about something and you're not, you're not really sure how to respond or what to do. Paul stands up with Peter and he calls him out in front of everyone in a very public way. You, who are a Jew but live like a Gentile, and, and then you're going to turn around and expect everyone else to live like Jews? What are you thinking? What are you doing? And quite simply, when you think about it, there's, there's a lesson to learn for leaders. I mean, right up front. I mean, you're, you're leaders in the church, this is, something, this, this is something I don't even think you know until you begin to have people follow you. There's a responsibility, whether it's, whether it's 10 people or 100 people, there's a responsibility that leaders, as they stand to lead, people are going to be watching. They're going to follow your example. And there's some things because of the breadth of the problem that, that needs to be dealt with publicly. And that's why the Bible teaches and it, it talks about in 1 Timothy as, as leaders are disciplined that it should be done publicly. It should be done so that other people can see it. That's difficult. But I, I'm asking you now, I'm, I'm putting myself in front of you now, if there's something that you see in my life that becomes out of step with the gospel, call me on it. Call me. Say, hey, there's something wrong in your life. What you're saying and what you're acting, they're, they're, they're not lining up. There's something out of step with the gospel. And as our eldership forms and as our leaders stand up and we, and we solidify the, the process for deacons to be installed, when you see things, bring it to the leadership so that it can be dealt with. Because the reality is, is that leaders have to set the right example. They have to stay in step. Because how else will anyone else know how to walk? I mean, if the drill sergeant who's calling the cadence calls out right when he means left, how in the world will anybody else know how to march? They won't. But more than just leaders, I think there's some principles that apply across the board. I think, I think here we see that, that not only can, can leaders learn here, but, but I think that we can see that our actions will reveal more about our faith than just what we say. It is so easy to say I believe something. I really believe that Jesus is coming on October 21st and that's the end of the world. 
I could say that all day long. You know what? I really, I don't believe that. But it's awfully easy to say. The end is coming on October 21st. If I really believe that, there'd be things that I did differently, I would imagine. I, my priorities, I'm sure, would change. I mean, if really, if, if the end is coming... If the end is coming on October 21st, it's time to quit planting a church and time to just begin running to everybody's door and knocking and, and doing what I can to see people saved. See, if, if the end is coming, my priorities change. It's, it's time to quit putting money away in a 401k and saving for retirement. It, it's time to get that money out and spend every bit now. You know, you can't take it with you. So I'm going to go buy a Harley. <laughs> priorities would change. And see, if I really believe that, if I really believe that, I might not have to look at Bible reading and prayer and my walk with the Lord as a discipline. I might be so scared about the end. It might be such a real priority that those things would be every moment of my life. And people say that when they are on their deathbed, that things look totally different. Their perspectives change completely. You see, the truth is, is that what we believe, what we really believe, will show itself in how we act. What we really believe will show itself in how we act. Now, don't hear me saying that, that and here's the danger of this. We can't get our actions in order and assume, oh, we've got it. I'm acting right now. I've got it all figured out and my actions are, are the way they should be. I show up at church at 1030 on every Sunday morning. I, I'm a part of a community group. I'm, I, I'm doing some service in the church. I read my Bible. I'm memorizing the book of Galatians. I've got all these things. And, and look, now my actions are right. So that must mean that I've got it figured out. You see, the danger is that like these circumcision people, the, the, the circumcision party, they looked at their life as this. They loved the idea of Jesus. They, they loved what he stood for, what he was about. And they figured that if they believed him and they obeyed the laws and the traditions that they had been given, that they would be saved. And see, if you put it in a formula format, they would, they, they would see it as belief plus obedience equals salvation. That's all wrong. You see, it can't be an addition formula. I mean, it's, it's, more like a, it's more like a function. When God puts faith in us, salvation and obedience emerge. When, when faith is given to us and when we, we are given eyes to see the truth and God puts, our, puts faith in us and we're able to believe the truth, salvation is the result. And obedience is the result. You see, when something is real and, and, and it's a true faith, your life will look different. You will act different. Your priorities will change. Maybe, maybe not all at once. I mean, these Galatians, you, you consider who these Galatians were and what they were experiencing. These Galatians, they were, they were a people who responded to Paul in his first preaching. Paul went into the city of, of, of uh Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, and, and he went into this region of, of Galatia and he preached the gospel and these people responded. But they were still getting misled. There still was junk to deal with. There still was, 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 was problems that they dealt with and they, and they began to be misled. It didn't make them less of the church. It just demonstrated that there was still some ugliness that needed to be sanctified, that needed to be cleansed. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. To lead them back to the gospel. You see, the truth is, is that there's a lot of times that we begin to act and, and think as if the things that we do really demonstrate our great salvation. Or that we begin to think that our salvation is secured by the things we do. And essentially that's all wrong. That's putting too much weight on the on the works, putting too much hope on the on the on the obedience, putting too much too much trust in your own effort. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. 
You see, Peter said, I believe the gospel. Paul, here's the right hand of fellowship. I agree with you on what you say. But when he walks into Antioch and he begins to hang out with the Jews or the Gentiles there, and he begins to celebrate with them until some people show up that might think a little differently. You see, what he really began to believe, or what he really believed, began to be revealed. You see, Paul, at some level, or I'm sorry, Peter, at some level, was really concerned about what these people thought. He was really concerned about how these people perceived him. He was really concerned about what they would do if they saw him eating that bacon for breakfast. How will they follow me? How will they think of me? How will they talk about me? And so at some level, Peter, even Peter, was struggling with a desire for approval before people, thinking that in some way that made him who he was, thinking that in some way this approval from people was what made him worthy of anything. Paul wouldn't have anything to do with it. You see, not only can we see that our our actions will end up revealing our faith or what we really believe, but we can also see that our actions set an example for others. People are watching. Do you, do you know why it is that people outside the church speak so much about hypocrites inside the church? At first, I think it's because they recognize there should be something different about us. I don't know that they understand it all. I think in their minds they, should, they, they are looking for and, and seeking to perceive the difference in lifestyle and action. I think in some people's mind, every Christian should look like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. I don't know if you guys remember him. He was a really goofy, kind of dorky guy. He had no, no real personality. Well, he had a personality, but it wasn't one that people liked. It was, it was something to be made fun of. I, I think that people perceive Christians and, and they look for these outward actions. And that's all they can look for. That's all they know to look for. But, but I think it's, it's driven out of this understanding that as Christians, there should be something fundamentally different. Our lives shouldn't look like everyone else's. God has made us holy, distinct, I mean, really, here's, here's, the, here's the thing about the food laws. The food laws and circumcision, you know what that did for the, the Jewish people? Obviously, God didn't look at those people and say, well, you got circumcised, you're mine now. Oh, you're not eating, you're not eating pork, so you're mine now. It's not truly the thing that made them clean or unclean or holy or unholy. But what those, what those ritualistic laws, what those ceremonial laws did was they set the Jewish people apart. They made them very distinct from every other culture. Not once did a sacrifice of an animal truly cleanse anyone from sin. All it did was point to the fact that one day there would be a perfect sacrifice given. Not once did not eating pigs make people acceptable and clean before God. All it did was demonstrate that they were striving to live in obedience to His commands because they were His people. You see, the whole idea behind these ceremonial laws is that they were distinct. They belonged to God. And I think that the world understands that as Christians, we belong to God. They may not think of it this fully. They may not think this far around it. But I think that they recognize that because we belong to God, there should be something different. And if we're not careful, we'll step back into the last point and begin to think that, oh, I've got to live different. I've got to make myself acceptable to God. I've got to do this thing so that everybody around me knows because as soon as you begin to do that, you know what happens? You begin to live for the fear or approval of people. You're either, you're either striving to live to approve people or present yourself worthy before God. Opposite ends of the spectrum. Both very dangerous places to be. 
But see, our, our, our lives are an example to other people. People are watching. And so when a minister is, is publicized on television as having a homosexual affair, when, when a minister cheats on his wife, when someone of note or someone that is, is uh, popular in Christianity, when they fall, all it does is feed the fire of our culture. When you go to work, when you, when you live in your neighborhoods, when you react to situations that are difficult and bigger than you that you can't deal with on your own, when you live and deal with the things that we live with, people are watching. You see, and here's the thing is that, that, that what they can't see, what they can't see that should be driving your reaction and driving your response and driving the way you live is the great and good work that God is doing in you because of the gospel. You see, because of the gospel, God is doing a work in you because of the gospel. He has justified you. He has called you clean. And now he is purging you and cleansing you. And that should become evident to people around you. See, because of the gospel, you're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. Because of the gospel, because of the gospel, you are a new creation in Christ. And it's that new identity, it's that new work that's in you that should begin to be seen outside of you. You see, you weren't planted to be orange trees. You were planted to be apple trees. So your life should produce apples. Plenty of good, juicy, luscious apples. I want to be golden delicious because that's my favorite. But that's, that's what we were created for. That's the work He began in us. And that's the work that then should begin to overflow out of us. That's the work that the world should begin to see. They shouldn't see someone that looks just like everyone else. They shouldn't see someone who, who, whose life is, is no different and is saturated with the, the lost culture. They should see a light in darkness. Not by your own power, but because of the gospel at work in you. You see him, Peter. Peter walking into this, this community, walking in step with them and loving on them and accepting the good gifts from them and fellowshipping with them and eating with them was Peter standing in the grace and freedom of the gospel. You see, we have to, re we have to recognize and realize that everything that is culturally um, considered uh, harsh or bad is, is not, necess not necessarily harsh or bad. We have to understand the culture we live in. We have to understand the place we live. But Peter walks in and he does all of these things and these people from this other culture with this legalistic view walk in and he suddenly forgets his freedom. He suddenly forgets the glory of God that's being revealed through him as he sits with these people and fellowships with them. He suddenly forgets that God gave his salvation freely and that he's not having to work for it or impress anyone for it. And Paul doesn't stand for it. You see that they were out of step with the gospel. There was something not right. And there's three things I think we see in this passage that are out of step with the gospel. Three groups of people that, that in three different ways we see they are out of step with the gospel. And the first is, I think, the circumcision party. They've got this view. They've got this view that, you know what, we, we've got Jesus and we've got our law and we've got them both and we're going to cling to them both and because of both of these things, we're going to be saved. You see, legalism, legalism is out of step with the gospel. And that's exactly what they were doing. Jesus plus something else gives me salvation. Jesus plus not eating this food, plus circumcising my children, plus doing certain things on the Sabbath, plus whatever you want to put there. What, what, what would you add there? What would our culture add there? 
Jesus. Plus, uh, we live in a Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal region uh, between uh, the Assemblies of God and all the other Pentecostal churches. I, I, I'm not speaking harshly about them. I don't want you to hear that. But there's a, a place where I would d- disagree with them is that many of these Pentecostal churches would teach you that if you do not speak in tongues, you have not received the Spirit and therefore you have not been saved. Jesus plus something. There's a lot of churches in our area who would say that Jesus plus baptism equals salvation. You mean my effort adds to me being saved? Baptism is absolutely important. It's a command of Jesus to go and do absolutely. We, We teach people to be baptized, but in no way does it save you. Jesus plus a certain style of music. Jesus. Especially like in in churches who are trying to be cool and hip. Jesus plus all these cool hip programs and and all of these things that make people feel really good and emotional and and, and words and lessons that that tickle their ears. Jesus plus some some ministry uh, perspective or Jesus plus something. Jesus plus children. Jesus plus my wife stays home with the kids instead of going off to have a job. Jesus plus you name it. We're struggling with that all the time. And the reality is it was in the church from the very beginning. Legalism though, is out of step with the gospel. Because the gospel says this, you and I and every other person that has ever lived are totally and irrevocably sinful by our own power. We cannot ever do any good work to make up for all the sins that we will commit, have committed or will commit in the future. There is no work that will cover them all. There is nothing we can do. And even our greatest and best efforts are filthy compared to God's holiness and perfection. The gospel says that even though that is true, that even though no one is righteous, the gospel says that a righteousness from God has been revealed. And that Jesus came and died so that God, even though He was overlooking sins, would remain just. This is Romans chapter 3. You can look it up and read it later. Even though God, who was overlooking sins, would remain just. And that as we come to faith and trust in the One who died, Jesus Christ on the cross, in our place for our sins, that His righteousness, His perfection, His Uh, His completeness, that is transferred to us. There's nothing you or I could do. There is nothing that can be added to this without destroying it. Legalism is out of step with the Gospel. And to add anything to it distorts it and makes it something else. A false gospel. Hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel. Hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel. Going in and acting one way when really you're someone totally different is out of step with the gospel. I mean, why do we act hypocritically? Let's let's just be honest. Why do we act hypocritically? Because we're putting on a show. We recognize what's real and true about us inside. And sometimes I don't even think we really recognize the depths of our depravity. I I don't think we get how sinful we really are sometimes. I think that's why it takes a time for God to reveal these things to us. I think that's why, why the sanctification is a process. Because He reveals to us our fallenness just a little bit at a time. But we act as hypocrites because we are putting on a show. 
And we're not really called hypocrites until all of a sudden we can't live up to the show or to the image that we've painted for people to see. No one expects a bum to do anything but what a bum does. Right? I mean, a homeless guy who wants to be homeless, who has no other desire to be anything other than homeless, everyone expects him to do what? I expect him to try and take my money so they can go buy a bottle and continue to drink. That's, that's my picture of a homeless guy that wants to be homeless. I know it's harsh and cruel, but I've, I've known some, and that's how they acted. And so that's my mind, in my mind. But you know what? The guy's being who he is. He's being real. No one expects a, a, a mother to do anything other than to love her children. And so when, when, that, when that image is broken, we struggle with that. It's hard to understand. In, in fact, I can, I can tell you from, from the conversations I've had, it's hard to understand when a mother doesn't love her children. It's hard for people on the outside looking into situations and think about how a mother could treat her children badly because most people expect that mother to live up to something. And so she becomes a hypocrite when in front of everyone she acts like she's the best thing in the world. And then behind closed doors, hates her children and is abusive verbally or even possibly physically. That's hypocritical. That kind of life, that, that, that kind of life where one time I, I think my son, in fact I know it was my son Cameron, he, he described someone as a pancake, smooth on one side and full of bubbles and holes on the other. And that kind of life is out of step with the gospel. We don't have anyone to impress anymore. You know why? Because the gospel says that God looked at you and in Christ has accepted you. You are His. Not because of what you do or how people perceive you or, or what people think of you. No, that does, I, I don't want you to stand up and start airing your dirty laundry at every big public meeting you can have. There are a time and place for certain things. But something that's lacking in the church, and one of the reasons I think that our culture is pushing so hard against hypocrisy today is because people want to see authentic people. People who aren't standing to be something they're not, but who are desperately depending on and clinging to the cross of Christ. Who recognize that they are flawed and they're doing the best they can, but when they fall and fail, they recognize and have never made anyone believe anything different. They're still standing in the grace of Christ. And when they're doing well and everything seems right in their life, they're not standing and saying, look at what I've done. I want you to pay attention to me. But they're saying, look at the cross of Christ and look at his power in my life. You see, I think that's the authenticity that people want to see. I think that's the authenticity that people need to see. And hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel. And Peter and these other Jewish believers who stepped back, who stepped back and, and wouldn't live in the freedom that God had given them. You know, I, I, I might get the struggle a little more. I might understand that struggle a little more if Peter hadn't been given the revelation. If they hadn't understood from God already that, hey, this food is free for you to eat. I, I, I would get it just a little more. I would understand it a little more, but God had given Peter this revelation. God had said, what I've given you, don't call unclean. And see, these Peter and these other believers, even Barnabas, walk in hypocrisy and get out of step with the gospel because they're more concerned about what others think than the God that approved them already. The fear of man is out of step with the gospel. We know this specifically was applied to Peter. I think that we could probably see it in the other Jewish believers as well. But fear of men or fear of mankind, fear of others, is it's out of step with the gospel. The Bible teaches us that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. That's 2 Timothy 1.7. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. Even now, as believers in Jesus Christ, as people who are in Christ, even fear 
of God's wrath is no longer something that has to be a driving force or factor in our life, except that it should drive us to desperate clinging and desperate dependence on the cross. You see, the fear of God's wrath is something that we are as close to as we will ever be in this world. We will never experience God's wrath more than what we are experiencing in this world. God's wrath is being revealed against mankind. We know that from Romans. And so we are experiencing it at some level as, as the world, as we deal with heartache and trouble, we are dealing with, with natural disaster and suffering in this life that's as close to the wrath of God that you and I will ever be in Christ. But a fear of that wrath should do nothing more than drive us deeper into the cross. Even for us, even for us, that fear should turn to an awe and adoration and a love for God that, that, that drives us, that, that, that pushes us to live in such a way that it honors Him and glorifies Him. And see, fear of man, it's out of step with the gospel. Because the gospel says that the only one that has to accept us is God. The only one that we should be afraid of is God. The only one that we should ever fear is the one that has power to destroy our soul. That's God. The fear of man is totally undermining the gospel. So what do we do with this and how do we think about it? How do we bring it into application in our lives? I want you to think about this. I've got, I've got a diagram. I actually skipped over it just a minute ago, but I think I can, I can help bring some application by, by using it now. When we consider our lives and how we live them, we have two choices. We can either be legalistic, we can live in legalism, or we can live and default in default in freedom or liberalism. And I, as I talk about liberalism, I'm not talking about a political view. I'm talking about believing that, hey, in the end, God's love wins and nobody really has to measure up. Nothing has to happen. It's just you, you just get by and God's going to take care of you. And it's all about freedom. But in the end, both of these perspectives, both of these perspectives being two opposite ends of the spectrum, both of them lead to absolute hopelessness. Legalism leads to hopelessness because it, it, it requires you to stand on your own efforts. It requires you to measure up. It requires you to be a person you can't be on your own. Liberalism, resting too much in freedom, demonstrates that you don't really know the God who saved you. Because He does call you to live and be a person who honors Him and glorifies Him. You see, we, we, we default between these two things and it's kind of, sometimes like it's, it's like a pendulum swinging. And this is the reality of the Christian life. I want to call you to the Gospel. To recognize the Gospel. Because when we think about Jesus, the, the, the cross of Christ, when, the, the Gospel, it directs our attention to Jesus. It causes us to depend on Him as we trust in Him, as we believe in Him. Not even, not even our belief is really about us. You see, that's the interesting thing about faith. Is, is faith is, is so often placed in things that have no power. And they really have to do with our perspective and what we think about them. But the reality is, is that faith in Christ is completely and totally dependent upon Him. It's dependent upon what He said He would do. It's dependent upon who He said He is. It's dependent upon what He said He came to do. It's got nothing to do with us. And so I want to remind you of the gospel. And I want you to look at your life. And I want you to consider where that pendulum is hanging in your life. Is it, is it resting in liberalism or is it resting in legalism? Are you holding on to some idea that you can make yourself acceptable to God? Or are you resting so much in faith that your life doesn't resemble a person who belongs to God? Both lead to hopelessness. I want to call you to the gospel. Jesus, God's own Son, came, He died in your place for your sin. He says, believe in Me. Trust in Me.
No, no longer is there any reason to be legalistic. No longer is there any reason to be hypocritical. No longer is there reason to fear the men and women that you live around. But you can stand boldly being who you are and what Christ has made you to be. Bearing all the fruit that He's intended you to bear. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that that you saved us. I, I pray, God, that you would give us strength and insight to stand against these temptations in our own life, these struggles in, in our own walks, God, that the difficulty we face, the difficulties we face as we struggle between these two perspectives, the, the challenges of our own lives, Help us to see, God. Are we trusting too much in our own freedom? Our own action? God, I would pray that you'd call us back to the center. Call us back to your Son. Call us back to the One who saved us, who did the work that made us righteous. And help us to rest in that grace. And so all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week we come to a time of response and we celebrate that in communion. As you consider the broken body and the shed blood, that that broken body and that blood that was shed, it paid the price for our sins. We are not acceptable to God outside of 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 the work of Christ on the cross. And so we come to this as a time to celebrate, a time to reflect, a time to respond, a time to consider the price that was paid. There should be, it should be solemn, but it should be um, um, intent and, and a celebration as well. It should bring joy in our hearts as we consider He loved us that much. I mean, you consider that song, How He Loved Us. He loved us enough that He allowed Himself to be hung on that cross. He loved us enough that He stepped out of heaven. He loved us enough that He took our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. He stood in the place of sinners so that when God looked at us, He no longer saw the filth and the dirt and the depravity, but He saw the beauty and splendor of His Son, Jesus Christ. So I would challenge you today to consider where you're at. I would challenge you today to consider what He's done. I would challenge you to to sit and, and, and consider what sins you're, you're walking on, what your sins you're struggling on, whether, whether they're liberalism or legalistic and repent of those. Confess them, turn from them, walk in a different direction, and then come and celebrate that it's not that effort of walking that keeps you safer has made you acceptable, but it's the work of Christ on the cross that makes it all come to, come to power.